0: One of the things that I I love getting to hear at Christmas is just the different kind of traditions and celebrations that people have uh, both leading up to Christmas and on Christmas Day. Uh, It's one of the favorite questions that they ask is what does your family do for Christmas? What are kind of special things you do? Uh, There's, I think, no other holiday that kind of has this build-up, lead-up anticipation to it quite like Christmas. Uh, I've said before, I think that Christmas is probably my Favorite holiday. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because of the nostalgia of the Christmas break. Right? Like, I I can remember as a kid just counting down the days until Christmas break came. And, And I remember feeling like I was getting gypped somehow on the years when we only got a week off right? Like the years where Christmas falls on a Sunday and you only get a week off. It's like, this, this isn't right. Uh, and then the years where it fell on a Wednesday and we got two weeks off, it was like Christmas was twice as good. I remember thinking, well, why can't we just have Christmas on Wednesday every year, right? Thanksgiving falls on Thursday every year. We should do something about this. Christmas should fall on a Wednesday every single year. But the, the Christmas break got even better uh, once I got to college. Because now I didn't just get a, a week off, two weeks off, but like an entire month off. I thought, this is, this is great. Everyone should get this at Christmas. Uh, and, and it was really good that Christmas break came when it did because it, it came the, the week after finals week, which I thought was one of the worst weeks in college. Right? If you went to college, even those words finals week likely con- conjures up some sort of like stress, late nights, coffee and energy drinks projects are due, tests have to be taken, and it just feels like there's, there's not enough time to get everything done. Finals week, I thought, was one of the worst weeks. And, and yet what, in many ways, I think helped me and probably a lot of other students to get through finals week is knowing that when that last test is done, and I walk out of there, I'm free, right? No more tests, no more homework, no more classes, for an entire month, this is great. And, and so there, there was this very real sense in which what lay ahead for me what was what enabled me to push through whatever difficulty I might think that I was facing in finals week. See, the, the reality is that what we believe, what we think, what we may even say we know about the future, inevitably affects how we live and face the present right now, moment by moment. As as we get to Zechariah 14 and finish up our our study in the book of Zechariah, we we find Zechariah speaking mainly of things that I would say portray more towards Christ's second coming, his return, than his first coming at Christmas. When we talk about Advent and celebrating Advent, That that word Advent literally means coming or arrival. And, And we are people today who as we look back on and celebrate Christ's first Advent are still left waiting, longing, and looking forward to Christ's second Advent. And we find references to his second advent, I would say, in Zechariah 14, as it speaks about the final rescue of God's people, the renewal of all things, the the judgment of enemies and God's people being in perfect holiness before him one day. In fact, much of what we hear in this chapter we could see and hear echoed in Revelation 21 and 22 if we would read those passages alongside of it. And what's ultimately at the center of this chapter, as, as I hope we'll see, is this. In verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. All of history is moving towards that. Like If, you, if we picture history as a story, the, the end that ends up in many ways just being the beginning is this. The exaltation of Christ as king over all things. If we picture history as a funnel, this is the point that it's funneling towards. If if we picture it as a progression, this is what it's all moving towards. Like however we picture history, history is on a march towards this moment. Christ being exalted as the one true king who rules over all people and all things. And we get some glimpses of that in Zechariah 14. And we see that we worship Jesus as king by living now in light of the future. We worship Jesus as king right now by living in light of the future he promises when he returns. And so we're, we're going to, again, break this passage kind of up into chunks, looking at it bit by bit, kind of taking five verses at a time. But, but let me pray for us before we look at the first five verses in Zechariah 14. Father, you are a great and awesome and holy and majestic God. And Jesus is a glorious, exalted, awesome king. And yet we confess that, that so often we fail to see and think and feel and live in light of those truths. And so I, I pray that, th- that this morning a- as we look out to Christmas we might be people who as well look out to Christ's return and what he's going to do and that our eyes and our minds and our hearts might be drawn to worship, submit to, and honor him as we leave and head into this week. I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah 14, starting in verse one, we'll read up through verse five. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And they shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and on that day all the holy ones with I confess, first of all, as I read those verses, I don't know if they're talking about a literal battle or a metaphorical battle. Uh, I lean towards this. This chapter is speaking more metaphorically because of the type of imagery that it's using throughout it. But, But either way, what we see is that God's people or the life of God's people in this world is still full of trouble. Still full of trouble. I mean, verses 1 and 2 are an awful, horrendous scene of incredible trouble. And, and it would have been a scene that for the Israelites who were first hearing this and reading it, recalled to their minds 586 BC when Babylon came against Jerusalem and ransacked it. And so it would have communicated to them, though you have returned from exile, there still remains trouble in the future for you. All will not be bliss and good yet, there still remains trouble. And and the same reality is still true for followers of Christ today, for those who are trusting in Jesus. Jesus coming at Christmas, his first coming at Christmas, does not mean that somehow now our lives will be free of trouble. We still face trouble. And as his followers, sometimes it means we face even more trouble in this world. But but we find the trouble is under our king's control, that he's controlling the scene, and that ultimately the king will act to rescue his people from all troubles. Jesus is is exalted as the king who rescues his people from their troubles. Verses 3 through 5 show God showing up to fight for and rescue his people. And it's an incredible picture. He shows up, he stands on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in half to provide a way of escape for his people. Like it's the image of where there is no other way, where there is no other hope, God shows up and he makes a way for his people and offers them hope. It's an image that would have recalled the... Uh, Exodus and the Red Sea. Standing in the Red Sea and thinking, there is no hope for us. And God splitting open the sea so his people can walk through it. And yet here God's splitting open mountains so that his people might walk through. It is this image that God is a God who rescues his people from their troubles and their enemies. When we think about Christmas, we, we associate it with God being a rescuer God who Comes to rescue his people from sin, that Jesus provides a way to be forgiven where there is no other way. And then as we look out to his return, we see the image of him coming to rescue his people from all their troubles and enemies. And in the meantime, that means that we look to him to be our rescuer, our helper in the face of whatever troubles we experience in this world. I mean, I, th- I think about how many times could we apply the words of Psalm 40, one to three, to our lives in some ways, where the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I'm waiting for God. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. The song gives us a picture of God acting to rescue his people and his people praising him as the one who rescues them. B- because ultimately we honor and exalt those who go to great lengths to rescue people. Right? I, I want to introduce you this morning to a guy by the name of Jack Pritchard. I have a picture of him up there. Uh, Jack is the most decorated or honored firefighter in uh, the New York City Fire Department history. And the reason that he is is because there are story after story after story of how Jack ran into burning buildings to rescue people and pull them out. If you went online and you searched Jack Pritchard firefighter, you could just kind of read these stories. Uh, They might be exaggerated. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if you if you trust the internet or not, but but I'll just give you two of them that that I read through. The the one was uh, when he was early on as a firefighter in 1975, he showed up at a, a fire that was a building that was three stories tall and it was on fire, and he found out there was a boy in the third story who was uh, developmentally disabled and unable to get out and was still stuck in this burning building. And so Jack gets a uh, ladder, puts it against the building, climbs up the building, busts out a window. Uh, I don't know that he did it with his elbow. That's just kind of what I imagine him doing uh, based on what I read of him. Probably not, probably something else. But it, it turns out the window was too small for him to get in with his oxygen. So he takes his oxygen off, risks his life, goes in, and gets this boy. Well, then there's not an easy way out. And so he ends up having to jump from the third floor down to a balcony with this boy in his hands in order to rescue him. That's why he's honored. Later on in his career, he showed up at a fire that was a four-story building and found out there was an infant in a crib that was still in the building in the fourth story And so immediately rushes into this building, rushes up to the fourth story, grabs the crib that this baby is in with his bare hands because somehow he didn't have gloves on, burns his hands as he pulls this baby out to safety through the fire. I mean, we honor people like Jack, say He goes to great lengths to rescue other people. His career is full of stories of these incredible rescues. When history is fully and finally written, it will be full of stories of how Jesus acted to rescue people. Full of stories of how he acted to rescue people how he rescued them from sin, how in the end he rescued them from all trouble and evil, and how in the meantime he acted again and again to support and help his people in the midst of our troubles and afflictions in this life. And so we we worship Jesus right now as we look to him in the midst of our troubles. I mean, as I was reading about Jack Pritchard this week, here's what I found happening in my mind. Thought, if I'm ever in a burning building... I want someone to call him or someone like him because that's someone who's coming after me and nothing's going to stop him and he's going to get to me. The same type of urge should stir up within us as we face trouble in this life to call out to Jesus to be our helper and our rescuer. Nothing can stop him. Nothing's impossible for him. That we look to him time and time again saying, Jesus, help me, rescue me, I'm in a pit, I'm struggling, I'm falling apart, help me. Not, Not knowing exactly how he'll rescue us, when he'll rescue us, what it will look like, but believing he is the king who loves to over and over and over again rescue his people. Christmas tells us he's done it before. His return tells us he will do it again. And in the meantime, we trust that he is doing it over and over again in the midst of our lives as we look to him. Now part of what we find in this passage is that Jesus' final rescue of his people will involve him removing all suffering and evil and making all things new. Jesus is exalted as the king who makes all things new. And so we read it in verses six through 11 where we we get these images or pictures, a couple that we'll look at. Starting in verse six, on that day there shall be no light cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Riman, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security." These verses give us several images or pictures surrounding Jesus' reign over the whole earth. And they're pictures that we see or that I think are meant to call to mind both the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 through 3 and the end of the story in Revelation 21 through 22. First, we get the image of the lights that mark day and night being removed. Uh, Commentators say verse 6 should actually be translated something along the lines of on that day, The light from the stars and the planets will be gone. But it's not a day of darkness because it says at evening, it's light. It's this image of a day of perfect light where all darkness is removed. It's talking about Jesus replacing all darkness with what is light. Or in other words, the day where he removes all evil all brokenness, all that is wrong with the world and replaces it with what is right, true, good, and beautiful only. And then we get the image of living waters flowing out and flowing both into the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. I love what Brian Gregory says about this verse. He says, just as copious streams will engulf a place of death like the Dead Sea and transform it into a wellspring of life, So the advent of the great king will overwhelm all his enemies and turn a world held in the deadly grip of evil into a place of new life. It's this image of life triumphing over death, of a place that's like the Dead Sea, a desert that's barren, dry, and dead, being full of life and fruit and joy. And then the third image is that of Jerusalem dwelling completely secure with no enemies that threaten her in verses 10 through 11. It's the picture of God's people dwelling in perfect peace without anything to fear, nothing left to fear. This is all an image of paradise, right? A world that is full of light and life and peace. And that's completely empty of darkness and death and evil. This is the paradise that every single human heart is longing for. Every single human heart is longing for this type of paradise. And the Bible makes sense of that longing because it says, this is what we were created for to enjoy. This is what we were made for, paradise with God. There's a new Lord of the Rings TV show that came out over this past fall. And and I love some of the words that are used in that show to capture this idea of this longing for paradise. In the show, one of the characters is talking about the beginning of their world. And she says, We had no word for death. For we thought our joys would be unending. We thought our light would never dim. But then she goes on to speak of a great foe who came against their land. And the most sad words are the ones that follow where she says, Now we learned many words for death. That's the story of the world we live in. That it was meant to be full of beauty and goodness only full of those things. And yet because of sin is broken, full of evil, and full of many words for darkness and death. And yet every single human being, because we long for paradise, is trying to get back to it in some way. Like we are on a never-ending pursuit to try to get back to paradise. We search for it in our achievements where we think if, if I can accomplish something great with my life, I'll somehow get back to paradise. Like we search for it in our families, thinking if I can somehow have the perfect family, I'll get back to paradise. We, we search for it in our politics, thinking if we can get the right rulers, we'll get back to paradise. We search for it in our technology, Thinking that if we can come up with the newest, greatest, best technology, we'll get back to paradise. I mean, we, we search for it even in like things like Netflix and gaming binges. Thinking that just for a couple hours, we can escape the darkness and get back to paradise. Every single human being, in thousands of different ways, is trying to get back to paradise in some way. And the message of Christmas is that none of us can get back to paradise with something in this world. But rather we need someone from outside of this world to come and bring paradise back to us and us back to paradise. The the, the message of Christmas tells us our pursuit of paradise apart from Jesus is vain because only he can make all things new. And so in the darkness of this world, we worship Jesus by trusting him to make all things new. One of the reasons that I love getting to read our kids' Advent book that we have here at church is because I love getting to read over and over and over again the truth that Jesus is going to make all the dark things light and all the wrong things right. Like, I don't know about you, but that does something to my soul when I read it. Saying, yes! Yes! He's going to take all the darkness away. He's going to make all the wrong things right and there's just this then longing for, all right, when's he going to do it? Eagerly waiting for it. I mean, cr- Christmas it is full of joy and happiness and goodness. It's one of the reasons that I, I love celebrating Christmas. But there's also this reality that for many at Christmas, the darkness and the pain just seems worse. That Christmas ends up exasperating The losses and the evil that we feel in this and leaving us saying again, how long, how long? And and I want to say, Christmas does not have to feel merry and bright for us to worship Jesus. Because Christmas is a blunt acknowledgement, all is not merry and bright in this world. That's why Jesus had to come to rescue us from sin and that's why he has to come again to make all things new. And so we worship Jesus by trusting him that he really is going to make all things new even as we groan under the weight of a world that isn't new and doesn't feel like paradise. And we find as we continue on in Zechariah that on the day when he returns, not only will he restore paradise, but he will reign as the only true king. Jesus is exalted as the only true king verses 12 through 16 or 15 are a little bit unsettling to me in this passage. And and maybe you'll see why as we read through. Here's what they say. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths why it's a little bit unsettling. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples. And on that day, jump down to verse 13, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of Booths. I'm going to stop there. Like that verse, verse 12 especially, is just a little bit unsettling to me because it gives us this image of Jesus judging his enemies. And I think why it's so unsettling is because it's really easy to forget or push off that Jesus will one day judge all of his enemies. Everyone who stands opposed to him in the end will face his judgment. Jesus is a good, kind, gracious, humble king. And he's also an absolutely perfectly just king who judges his enemies when he returns. But, but there's something else that's interesting about this passage, is that it shows those who were once Jesus' enemies, now instead serving him and worshiping him, right? It says they're, they're keeping the Feast of Booths, which is this feast celebrating God's deliverance of them. Like, Well, wait a second. So Jesus makes a way for those who deserve his judgment to escape his judgment. We're thinking, well, okay, how? Well, he comes at Christmas, the first time, to make a way for people to avoid his judgment. See, these verses, as I was reading through them this week, I thought, man, verse 12 sounds vaguely familiar to some other things in the Bible. It sounds vaguely familiar to other times where where God judges his enemies. But then I thought, it, it also sounds vaguely familiar to words that we read in Psalm 22. In fact, if you go to Psalm 22, 14 through 15... It says these words. I'll have them up on the screen. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Isn't that an image of their flesh will rot while they're standing still? And it goes on and says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death that uh, an image of a tongue rotting in a mouth a- and we say these words in Psalm 22 are pointing to what Jesus experiences when he comes and dies on the cross this is what is so incredible the same king who will judge his enemies when he returns one day is the king who made a way to escape that judgment for all his enemies by facing it himself when he came the first time Like the same king who is exalted in judgment is the king who faced judgment so that he might be exalted in saving people from it. That's the incredibly good news of Christmas. And and how do we avoid his judgment and experience his salvation? By surrendering to him, trusting him, worshiping him as the only true king. Christmas tells us there are only two real options for every single human being on this earth to trust in Jesus as the King who died for us to rescue us, or to oppose Him, push Him away, avoid Him, and one day face His judgment. See, there's this offense to Christmas. We kind of cover it up, I think, sometimes with all the bells and lights and whistles, but there is an offense where Jesus coming at Christmas says, there is only one king, right? That's why Herod freaked out when Jesus came. Because Jesus coming at Christmas says to me and to you, Kyle, you are not the king. You are not sovereign. Your life is not your own. You are not the center of the world. I am. And you you, you must surrender your life to me, your wants, your desires, all that you are to me. Like that, that should unsettle us at times. Jesus as this king should have sort of an unsettling effect to us. In fact, I, I wonder sometimes if we aren't at times unsettled by Jesus as a king, is it because we still view him as more of a butler than a king? You, you know what I mean by that? A butler is someone who I look to and I tell them, My will be done. And you do it for me. And a king is someone who I look to and say, your will be done. And I'll do it. Like there's still this tendency in us to treat Jesus almost as more of a butler. The one who should make my life what I want it to be. Rather than as a king. The one who I conform my life to in worship and awe. Yet Christmas should remind us Jesus is our savior who came to serve us. He came to die for us. And he's our king who came to rule over us. But he is a good, good, good king. He's a king who gives up his life to rescue people. Right? What, what other king would we want to serve and give our lives to and worship than that type of king who lays down his life to rescue his people? To lays down his life to rescue his enemies. And so we worship Jesus now as we submit to him as our king. Like each day we wake up and we've got this kind of continual choice in our lives. Am I going to live today submitting to Jesus as king? As though he rules over everything, every circumstance, every area of my life. Or am I going to live today as though I'm king? and try to get my way in everything that happens. And it makes a tremendous difference to how we approach life. Because if I view Jesus as king, then everything that happens in my life is ultimately there so that I might submit to him, serve him, honor him. That means how I relate to my kids. That means how I go about my job. That means how I face suffering. Everything is there for me to exalt him. But if I'm king, everything is just another opportunity for me to try to get my way and get what I want. And so recognizing Jesus is the only true king calls us to today submit to him as king and exalt him. And as we do that, Jesus is working to transform us into people who we will finally and fully be in his presence one day. He is exalted as the king who makes his people holy. In verses 20 and 21, we get this image of ordinary things becoming holy things. And so we read, and on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord and on the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar of the Lord and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It's this image of when Jesus returns he, he, he brings a new heavens, new earth, where his people are perfectly holy. This is Jesus' purpose for us. This is part of why he came to die for us. We, we read in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, So that he might present the church to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. See, Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. He died to make us perfectly and utterly holy one day in his presence. Now why is that good news for us today? First, I think because of this. Because we're right now called to live lives of holiness and pursue holiness and grow in holiness, obeying Jesus, becoming more like him. But man, that pursuit is hard. And there are a lot of days where I feel like I don't know that I'm making a whole lot of progress. Like I I don't know that I'm really growing that much right now in this area. I'm struggling. I seem to be failing more than I am succeeding. And so it's really good news that our king is more committed to making us holy than we are committed to pursuing holiness because he will do it. And so that's an encouragement as we struggle and fall and struggle with trying to pursue holiness in this life. But it's also good news because it means we can look forward to a day when everything that keeps us from seeing and loving and worshiping Jesus as we should will be taken away. I don't know how you you feel at times, but but if I can be honest with you, there are moments in my life where I'm discouraged because my love for Jesus feels so weak. Like there are moments in my life where I'm discouraged because my thoughts of him can be so small. Even though I know he's great and awesome, my thoughts just are so small. There, There are moments in my life where I'm discouraged because my worship of him lacks the type of joy and passion that I know should be there. There are moments in my life where I'm discouraged because I read the Bible and I get these glorious descriptions of Jesus and my eyes just kind of gloss over. It, right? Why, why is that? Like it's not because he's not this great and glorious king right now. I mean, part of it's because we don't see him face to face, but also part of it is because the sin that still lurks within us keeps us from knowing and loving and worshiping him as we should. There's a picture I have that I found this week of uh, the stars out in, I think this is somewhere in Utah. I I see pictures like that of the stars at night. And I'm prone to think, why isn't that what I see when I go out at night? Right? Do you feel that when you see those pictures? Like I go out at night and there's like 12 stars. I'm thinking that that might be the Big Dipper or, or maybe it's over there, right? Like why don't I see that? Well, one of the reasons that we're told we don't see that is because of what's called light pollution. Right? The, the, the lights from all our man-made things kind of create this glow in the atmosphere that keep us from seeing the stars as we really should see them. It's not that the stars aren't out there and objectively beautiful and majestic and should leave us saying, wow. It's that there's something else that gets in the way of us actually seeing them as we should. The same thing is the reality with Christ. It's not that he isn't objectively majestic and awesome, and if we saw him as we should, we would fall flat on our faces. It's because the sin that still pollutes us, keeps us from seeing and loving and worshiping and trusting him as he really is. And so it's good news that one day all that sin's gonna be taken away and we're gonna be made perfectly holy and we'll see Christ and we'll say, wow, as we always should have throughout all of history. And so even right now, we worship Jesus by pursuing holiness. Not because it gets us the praise of man, not because it gets us bonus points with God, but because the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Because the more we pursue and become holy, the more we see of our king, longing for the day where we'll see him face to face. And so Revelation 22, 1 through 5 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. because sometimes I think kids' books capture things so well. One day John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. We worship Jesus right now by meditating on the future he's promised. People are all over the place at Christmas. Like You might be someone who Christmas is full of reasons to be happy. Everything is going great. Praise God. Or you might be someone who Christmas is really dark this year and really difficult and full of lots of pain. Or you might be someone who's somewhere in the middle. And one of the best things about Christmas is that it introduces us to the one who promises to return and make all things new. And so if Christmas is great and everything's going well, we can look to him, long for him, and know the future will be far better. And if Christmas is dark and seems hopeless, we can put our hope in him and long for him to return and make it all right. Either way, I want to encourage us this Christmas, even as we celebrate Jesus coming as a baby, which we should, to also meditate on him returning as an exalted king. To think about what that will be like and to adore him right now even as we look forward to adoring him in the future. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you. We worship you. We we long for the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, help us to be people who find such a secure hope in you and in your return that it affects how we live day by day by day. That we live submitting to you as our king, looking to you to rescue us, trusting you to make all things new and longing for the day where we'll see you face to face. Say, come Lord Jesus, come. In this in your name, amen.